you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. As we've been working through this book the last few weeks, we come now to the fourth chapter, which is really the second half of the book. I mean, that's pretty easy to figure out. There are six chapters. But the way it's set up on an outline, this is actually now the second half. I'm going to read the uh, first few verses here, and then we'll get into this. All right. So uh, let's hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter Four, beginning at verse 1. Paul the Apostle, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, said, or wrote, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you now to open our understanding, guide us as we consider these words that you inspired your Apostle Paul to write and that you preserved through the centuries and had translated into our very own language that we might hear your voice speaking to us, Lord. And so we pray that you would do that. Speak to us this day from the Holy Scriptures, guide us and direct us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul, here in this second section of his epistle, he begins to make practical application. The first three chapters, primarily, he sets forth those great and wonderful truths that we've been looking at. And now uh, he's, and he's made application throughout as we've been going through this, uh, trying to help them understand what this means, what the implications of these great truths are. 
But then in chapter four, he begins to make application and how this applies to us as the body of Christ and the practical aspects of it in our daily living. First thing he does, clearly, he sets forth the importance of unity. And that's what we're talking about here today. The unity of the spirit. He says we are to keep that in the bond of peace. He goes on and talks about avoiding immorality in chapter 5. And he talks about domestic relationships uh, in chapter 5 and part of chapter 6. How husbands and wives are to uh, react and respond to each other and how they're to obey God in their relationships and how children are to obey their parents and parents are to raise their children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And at that time when they had bond servants that were permanently attached to households, Paul addresses the bond servants as the members of the households or the households that he had baptized. You know, often we have household baptism mentioned in Acts and some of the epistles. And then when we come to Ephesians and Colossians, we begin to find out, well, who were the members of those households? And we find it was husbands, wives, children, and bond servants. And so uh, we can get a picture of that when we understand um, just who the households are made up of, which is pretty easy to figure out, you know, your family. And then he talks about spiritual armor at the end of chapter six. And then he asks for prayer for himself. So a very practical application, but also some wonderful doctrinal truths or doctrinal truths are set forth in these uh, last three chapters. But he says, I, therefore, you know, we've, we've learned, I think from this and from other things that the word therefore is there for a reason. He's basing what he's going to say now on the truths uh, that he has brought forth or that the Holy Spirit brought forth. And he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, he said, I beseech you. That's a kind of a religious word. We don't use that much in our common vocabulary. I, I don't No one beseeched me this past week that I remember. Uh, but it means to ask. The Greek word is parakalo. And that's really in, in modern Greek how you say please, uh, sometimes thank you. Uh, but it, it's the idea of entreating, you know, I'm asking, please, please. It says, I therefore ask you, or you, we could say I politely ask you, but it's um, a word, you know, beseech, we have that word in the English language. And so it's a good word, but it means to really ask. I'm asking you to really do this. And Paul says, I'm beseeching you, no, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, Paul writes to them after just setting forth in the last chapter all the wonderful truths and the great exaltation that God has given to his elect as we're redeemed, we're made to be his children. As he said earlier, we're seated in the heavenlies in Christ. We've been raised from the dead spiritually. We look forward to being raised physically or transformed if we're alive when the Lord returns. Just wonderful privileges given to us. And then when he starts to make the practical application, he reminds them, as I said last week, all of these things, these wonderful truths come via the cross of Christ and come calling us to pick up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. God does bless us when we labor faithfully, but sometimes he calls us to honor him in the midst of sickness and poverty and persecution. And the Bible does say all those who live, will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So it's not surprising as he begins to set forth the nature of our duties, he reminds the Ephesians that he's writing as one who is in chains, who's in prison. But note what he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He was literally in the Lord. He was a a prisoner in the Lord. He was being held in chains uh, by the, the Romans. 
because of the false accusations brought against him by the uh, leaders in Judea, accusing him of causing trouble, which he actually wasn't, but um, he had appealed to Caesar, and so, as, the, as it was said, off to Caesar he was sent. And But he's now a prisoner, so he reminds them. You know, you would think that, well, if somebody's a prisoner, you know, shouldn't they have a measure of shame about that? You know, being somebody's in prison. Lots of times people who've done time, they don't like to talk about it, you know. I don't blame them. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be throwing people's past in their teeth. But here Paul writes as a prisoner who's not ashamed because he knows he's there for the right reason. Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for the son of man's sake. Uh, persecution is part of the Christian faith. Uh, there's no shame in being persecuted for doing what's right. And Paul is not ashamed of it. And he appeals to the Ephesians based on the fact that he was now in prison. The reason why he was in prison is because the authorities in Judea had grown to hate him. You remember, Paul was once a persecutor himself. But he had preached to the Gentiles, telling them that they didn't need to become Jews in order to be saved. They didn't have to be circumcised or begin to uh, keep the law of Moses. Now that would mean the ceremonies and the rituals and all those things. Paul didn't go around and tell people, don't worry about the Ten Commandments. Uh, you want to, you know, have God's law written in your heart. You want to be a covenant keeper, you know. So Paul wasn't saying it was okay to kill or to commit adultery or to lie or blaspheme God, etc., or worship idols. Uh, that aspect, you know, is clear. But he was talking about the, the ceremonies. You don't have to be circumcised nor keep the law of Moses in that sense to be saved. And even you don't keep the Ten Commandments to be saved either, okay? We need to be clear on that. We keep God's law, that is, we try to walk in obedience to his word because he's saved us through the blood of Jesus Christ by grace, and he's writing his law in our hearts and minds according to his promise in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 and 10, where he tells us that uh, he is writing his law in the hearts and minds of his people so that they would know him. So Paul, though, is writing here as a prisoner because he was hated. He preached to the Gentiles, and they didn't like the religious people of his day. didn't like what he was saying. If you look at the history of the church, you'll find most persecution has come from religious people. Now, some say, well, was that really true? Because it seems to be pretty political. I can assure you some of the politics that are out there, some of the political positions are actually religious uh, if you look at the nature of Marxism, it's basically a philosophy that has religious overtones to it. And it definitely is one that can't abide Christianity. We see this in our own society with this war. Uh, they call it secularism, and they tell us Christians to shut up because, uh, you know, we're impin impinging on their um, their political area. You know, we're not supposed to do that. It's like, well, you take moral issues, you call them political, and then you try to tell Christians to be quiet. It's not going to happen. We're to preach the gospel. We're to preach to all men. Paul did that. He ended up in prison. So he appeals to the Ephesians, who were primarily a Gentile church, and he lets them know, I'm in prison because I preached for you Gentiles. He says that earlier in the, in the third chapter. So he lets them know. He says, on that basis, you know what I'm going through. He said, I'm asking you to do something. And that is that you would walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, Paul says elsewhere that you were called by God's grace. God is the one that called you. You know, we, we talk about in scriptures very clear. There's that outward call where the word of a preacher or a teacher hits your ears. And then there's that inward call where the Holy Spirit is at work, uh, where the God, the Father and the Son are working. Remember, Jesus said, um, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. 
Uh, then he also said, no man can come to me except the father who has sent me draw him. And so Christ draws us to the father. The father draws us to Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one working in us to bring this about. This was a call of grace, all of God's grace. He called us in grace. And when we consider that, wait a minute, God called me to be saved based on nothing I've done. You know, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. God called me freely apart from any consideration of my worthiness because I was completely unworthy and am in myself completely unworthy. And yet I read in his word that grace was given to me in Christ Jesus before eternal times. In God's eternal counsel, Christ had stood for me, to use those types of expressions. God had always intended to save his elect. Christ had always covenanted with the Father and the Holy Spirit to come in time to redeem us by taking our nature, a true nature and a true body of flesh and blood, uh, become a real 100% human being made like us in all aspects except sin. And the Holy Spirit had covenanted with the Father and the Son to apply that redemption to us. The Father initiates the Son executes, the, that is, brings to a pass the Father's will, and the Holy Spirit makes the application. And we say, well, yeah, but, but, but what, you know, what about my part? I don't know, you were dead in trespasses and sins, and God raised you up through the gospel. What was Lazarus's part when Jesus raised him? You know, the widow of Nain, when Jesus walked up, and it says he touched the coffin or the bier that the young man was laying in, and he said, uh, arise. Jairus's daughter, you know, Jesus took her by the hand and uh, said, little lamb or young young maid, Talitha Kumi is the, the Aramaic there, and Talitha can mean little lamb or little girl, uh, arise. And Luke tells us her spirit returned. Now, what did she do? You know, did Jesus say, well, we're going to have to wait. You know, I've done all I can, you know, mom and dad here. Uh, we're going to have to wait till she does her part. Or Jesus had told Martha and Mary, I'd like to raise your, your brother from the dead but he's got to do his part, okay? <laughs> Lazarus came hopping out of that tomb wrapped in, in uh, grave clothes. Remember Jesus said, untie him and let him go. Because Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. That's the call. When God called you to faith in Christ, when the gospel came to you that said, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever shall believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life that Christ came into the world to save sinners uh, and he died on in from the dead and when you heard that message that God offers those who will trust in Christ and somehow faith entered your heart how'd that happen well it's God's gift you know it's not of yourselves it is the gift of God and you became alive spiritually and you believed in Jesus you trusted in him and God then declared you to be righteous in his sight, imputed to your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ, declared you to be righteous before him, adopted you to be his very own son or daughter, and gave you covenant promises of eternal life and of joy and of fellowship and said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's not going to throw you away. Remember when I quoted earlier, Jesus said, uh, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. He didn't say might, or I'm going to try my best. He said, they shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's pretty good. That, that, that phrase, in no wise or no way cast out, 
That's the strongest way of expressing a, a negative in the original language of that passage. I will in no way whatsoever cast out. So if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is 100% by God's grace because of his love. Because remember, he said, and I quote it often because it applies. I have loved you with an everlasting love. There's never been a moment in God's existence when he didn't love you. And he's eternal. That's the basis of your calling. And so when Paul says, walk worthy of that calling with which you were called, it was of grace. It was because of God's love. Let that get a hold of your heart. Let that get a hold of your mind, of your emotions, of your will, and of your behavior. And let it change you. When I say let it, it's God will do it. But the Holy Spirit works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So sometimes when people say, well, yeah, but you have to be willing. Yeah, you do. But that's not something you do. The Holy Spirit makes you willing. Your will was in bondage to sin. Remember the soul that sins uh, it, it, it shall die. And Jesus said, he that sins is a slave to sin. But if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That's our calling. It's all of grace. So how should we be walking? Oh, I owe God everything. Maybe I should like, put him a little higher up on my scale of important things. huh? Uh, maybe I need to learn to repent a little better. Maybe I need to learn to trust him. Maybe, maybe I should just love the Lord. You know, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We don't need to shrink away from that second part. We do need to glorify God by obedience to his word. As I said last Tuesday night at our Bible study, you know, doing God's will. And I think Alex uh, preempted that for me because uh, he knew it. He said, yeah, it means being where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it's like, yeah, and if we understand our duty from God's word, then we can find doing God's will. And God works in us. So we're to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And in case we're not sure what that means, he then tells us, well, if you've been called by grace, then there's no real area for puffiness and pride and, and arrogance in us. There's, that shouldn't be there. He says, with all lowliness and gentleness. Uh, the, the word lowliness, it, it actually means humility of mind. In, in your inward thoughts, you should have a high opinion of others. Lowliness doesn't mean that, you know, in our society, we're so uh, occupied making sure nobody has low self-esteem. Uh, and, you know, there's a point we don't want people being beat up or think that, you know, Paul says, look at your calling and how great it is and the exaltation and the promises of God and then be humble. Now, in an unregenerate nature, you give someone, you know, you exalt them with uh, fame and riches and, and praise. What happens? It generally destroys them. We see this in Hollywood. You know, some of the most wretched people on earth are people that uh, are famous, and they'll tell you that if they're if they're thinking clearly. Uh, we, we can see it, though, just the way they live and the things they go through. Not all of them. There's there's actually godly people in Hollywood, too. Uh, there are Christians among that that uh, category of humanity. But so often when you have people that are being praised for whatever they do, the human nature being such, if it's unregenerate, just goes from bad to worse. Here, though, God has exalted us. In Christ, we're seated at the right hand of God. That is, our, our head is there now, our federal head representative, and we're seated there. And so we're experiencing the outworking of that. But then Paul says, don't let that you know make you think that you're better than others. Recognize you're saved by grace. You were, before God saved you, you were a, a child of wrath, and Paul says, even as the others. 
So that should make us humble. We should have lowliness of mind. That is humble before God. Gentleness. That's that word meekness translated elsewhere. Blessed are the meek. Gentleness. You know, the grace of God ought to temper our character and our speech and our attitudes so that we're gentle with one another. Long-suffering. Now, I'm not trying to be funny here, but I do think there is a little bit of humor in this if we think about it. If God wants to bring forth the fruit of his spirit in your life, and one of those is long-suffering, what kind of people is he going to put you with? <laughs> He's going to put you with people that never make any mistakes. He's going to make you with probably part of a group of people that once in a while struggle. Once in a while they say something they shouldn't. Once in a while they forget to say something they should, or they do things they shouldn't. You're going to have to learn to be patient. You're going to have to be long-suffering. Why? Well, as uh, Paul says, that uh, you're to forgive one another. As Christ forgave you, look at the end of this chapter, verse 31. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking. Well, that's a whole pretty, pretty ugly list of things, isn't it? And evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. Get all that bitterness and ugliness out of your heart. How do you do that? You go to the one that can cleanse your heart. You go to Jesus and you confess it for what it is, sin. If you're holding grudges and you're bitter, you can say, yeah, but I was wrong. Okay, fine. That's on them. Holding a grudge, being bitter, go to God. Doesn't mean you have to call evil good now. You can say, no, I was treated evil. Remember Joseph and his brothers? uh, Joseph said, you meant it for evil. Joseph didn't tell his brothers, oh, it's okay what you did. He said, you meant it for evil. He didn't stop there, did he? He said, but the Lord meant it for good. Joseph recognized he was in God's hands, even by the actions of, of men who were doing evil things to him. That's the grace of God there. Paul saying, get all that out of your out of your heart. Get that out of your life. Let all, note that, you don't have the right to hang on to one little piece of revenge or something or one thought of vengeance is a little tasty morsel you're going to nurse yourself on and go, mm, yeah, I'll get him one of these days. Uh, that's just, you know, eating poison is all that is. Get it out of your life. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And then what does he say? And be kind to one another. He's talking here to the church. Be kind to one another. That word kind can also mean be good to each other. Be kind to each other. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So if you're having trouble, remember the two men went up into the temple to pray? Remember the story of the man that owed uh, 10,000 talents and the other guy owed about $20 to use modern money? And uh, the guy was forgiven this huge million-dollar, multi-million-dollar debt and went out and found somebody owed him with just a little bit of money, but he couldn't pay. So that first guy that had been forgiven threw the other guy into prison in the debtor's prison, because he wasn't going to allow anybody to be in debt to him. And Jesus said when the, the Lord, uh, the master found out, or the king found out, he took the first guy and threw him into prison and said, well, you forget about, you know, what I told you, because clearly it hadn't taken any effect in the guy. Uh, we need to recognize that. Jesus wasn't saying that if you're slow to forgive, God's going to throw you into hell. But forgiving people is a mark of regeneration. If you've been forgiven, it shouldn't be impossible for you to forgive others. We just prayed the Lord's. By the way, this this is no problem here because you guys are all honest and we just prayed, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
So we're all clear here, right? Nobody's holding any grudges or bitterness. You've let go. The word forgive in, in uh, Greek, it's actually related to the word divorce. And it means to, to send away or to let go. Uh, and so we were saying, you know, forgive us. That is release our debts as we release those who are indebted to us. You just prayed that a minute ago. So if you go back and go, ooh, yeah, but I wasn't really thinking about what that person did to me. Well, maybe you do. Go back and visit it. And just put it in God's hands. Okay, and I'm not saying you haven't been wrong, that people haven't done criminal things or bad things to hurt you or your family or people you love. I'm just saying don't let that bitterness poison your heart. Why give them influence in your life now by their wicked deeds? You know, if, if they did something bad and, you know, we, we sometimes use the term they messed you up, okay, because of their wickedness, either hurt you socially or, you know, among your friends or emotionally or mentally or whatever it was, go to God and say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. I don't want the works of evil people to have control over me. So, Lord, I want to let go of it. And when you, when you ask God to take a burden, I do believe when you ask sincerely in the name of Jesus Christ, he takes your burden. So what I really have to tell you is what I've had to learn and am learning. Quit playing tug of war with God. When you ask God to take a burden, let go of it. And you say, but I can't. Well, that's there's a prayer, right? Lord, I can't let go of this. It seems to be like a hook in me. Please get it out of me. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to be having evil thoughts. I don't want to keep revisiting the pain. Lord, I want to just give it to you. Please help me. And God can help you, and he will. Jesus is the best psychologist there is, okay? He knows how to work, because the word psyche, when we get the word psychology, it means soul, okay? He knows how to work in your soul. And uh, he's able, by the Holy Spirit, to purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. So Christ can help you. So learn to be forgiving. That's what he says, bearing with one another in love. Note that. It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, you're to love one another. Jesus gave that commandment. Love one another. And also it's his love. When we think about it, well, how can I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, God loves them. When you start seeing each other as the object of God's love, things change. Okay, when you realize, husbands, you realize God really loves my wife. That's awesome. Why is when you, and thank you for your patience putting up with this, but when you look at your husbands and you, you know, it's good to realize God really loves my husband. Parents, when you go, God really loves my children. He's given them covenant promises. And children, when you realize God really loves my parents, it becomes a lot easier to love people. You have to see them as the object of God's love. And so we're to bear with one another. That means be patient, be kind, be gentle in love. And then he says what we are to do, why is it leads to this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul lays the foundation for everything else he's going to say on this heading, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we can learn from this. We recognize, okay, God wants us to be united. That doesn't mean compromise. Okay, we're never to compromise God's word, but we, we can compromise our will. It's not my way or the highway, as some people seem to think. We need to recognize that, you know, God works in other people. He leads and guides him. We need to listen to each other. Um, and we are to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Nothing's worse than having attitudes or speaking words or doing actions that fragment the unity of God's people. I know so many people, I come across them all the time, people that don't go to church. And most of the reason is because they were treated horribly by professed Christians. They met up with Phariseeism, hard-heartedness, 
harsh words. They were going through something and they just felt like everybody was against him because one person won't use any adjectives with that uh, came up and said something really mean to them. Or maybe they didn't mess up and they didn't meet with any grace. They wanted to do what was right, but all they were reminded of continually is how bad they were and they were embarrassed and ashamed. So nobody seemed to try to restore them. And so they ended up leaving. They shouldn't have left, but sometimes just for their own sake, they had to do it for their own mental health uh, because they recognize God does love me and I'm not just a complete loser and everybody's treating me like I am. So we don't want to be doing that. We're to endeavor. That means diligently make an effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Not that keep. That word keep there, uh, the Greek word means to guard, to protect. And notice he doesn't say create it. You don't create the unity of the spirit. You are to keep it. The unity of the spirit is just that. The Holy Spirit gives us that unity. It's great. You know, you meet a brother or sister in Christ, somebody that loves Jesus. There's an there's instant bond there because they love Jesus. It comes out real quick. It's happened, you know, when I've traveled overseas in Africa, barely knew enough Swahili or French to talk to them. But they, they love Jesus and it comes out. OK, uh, you know, it, it, by the way, it's not just in foreign countries. It happens here. It's nice when we, we come across our, our brothers and sisters, make new friends. We're to endeavor to keep that unity. The Holy Spirit gives us that. Now, Paul's going to go on in this chapter. We're not going to hit all these verses right now. We're going to kind of pause at verse three. But I do want to move ahead a little bit because when he talks about, you know, he gave certain gifts, you know, uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists. And those were the temporary offices in the early church. Uh, if it, the word evangelist, some say, well, is that a permanent office? It, it has permanent applications. Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And so evangelism goes on. But, you know, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You, don't put the found, you do not put the foundation on the roof. The church was founded on the apostles and prophets. And after the first century, when they passed, uh, the church had been founded. That's why we have scripture. And as the church has stayed true to the scripture, the church has stayed true to God. But we have pastors and teachers. That's part of my job. We have other teachers in the church. Pastor, just a nice word for shepherd. That's exactly what it is. Uh, the, you know, we have under shepherds. We like to use that term, meaning those who uh, serve under Christ. And we don't have dominion over your faith, who are helpers of your joy. He appointed that. When we have qualified men preaching God's word, what happens? No, verse 12, okay? Uh, verse 11 is where he enumerates the offices. And 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, okay? Some said, well, does that mean that the pastors and teachers equip the saints or all these officers were there to equip the saints and all those officers are then to, no, it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, Okay. I've had to say this a few times to some brothers and sisters in other churches. You didn't hire me to do what God tells you to do. Okay. If somebody's sick, I want to know about it because I'd like to visit them. But don't come to me and say, go visit somebody and you haven't done it. Or say somebody needs prayer. You haven't prayed for them. Okay. I'm not here to do what God tells you to do. I'm here to do what God tells me to do. That might sound tough or trying to excuse myself or something like that. I'm not. We're, my job is to preach God's word, to equip you so you know how to do it right. To minister to the saints, be involved in each other's lives in a good way, to act like brothers and sisters in the family of God. Note that. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, edify, you know, an edifice is a building, for the building up 
of the body of Christ. That's God's people. So as we serve the Lord and you say, well, I don't know what he wants me to do. Well, pray, brother or sister, pray. That's where it starts. And that might be the thing you need to do. You know, not everybody necessarily is out fighting the battles, but they definitely need the prayer support of those that are behind them and, and to know that there's people calling on God. I've said this before. And I don't mean to talk about myself, but I can tell when people pray for me. I really can. And beloved, sometimes I think I can tell when they're not praying for me. Okay. Um, and that's not, it's not about me. You've got other friends and family and officers here in the church we need to pray for. The church, you can look at a church pretty much and find out if people are praying for it. Okay. Uh, and let me ask you just by way of challenge, how much have you prayed for, you know, the growth and the blessing of, of God on this congregation? We need to be doing that. Okay. And I know, I know probably pretty much everybody here does that, but we need to grow in that, but know what it is. He says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we come to the unity, is that word unity again? Remember we started off the unity of the spirit, we're to keep it guarded in the bond of peace, till we all come to the unity of the faith. That's something we grow into. The unity of the spirit is given to us. We're, our job is don't mess it up with bad attitudes and harsh words and bad actions, okay? The unity of the spirit, we're to guard that. So I need to make sure I work to preserve that unity of the church. But we grow into the unity of the faith as the word is taught by qualified, called pastors and teachers. The main problem is, well, what about all this stuff going on, all this weird, shallow, sloppy agape, you know, the, the, what's the term, evangelical fish theology that seems to be in our culture that's barely in touch with the word of God. I will tell you. And I'm not denigrating my fellow pastors. A lot of them are way better men than I am. That's not uh, hard to, to, to prove. But if we didn't have so many unqualified persons giving themselves out as pastors and teachers, not teaching God's word and getting, you know, teaching you know, the prosperity gospel or the neo-apostolic movement stuff or just you name it, anything except the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we didn't have unqualified men in the pulpit, we'd see this unity of the faith much more manifested in the larger body of Christ. All right, that's the problem. That's why it's important for us to encourage those who believe they're called to the ministry to get educated. And, to you know, and the education for the ministry means they learn how to pray and how to live a godly life. But also that they learn what how to read God's word. You know, and we need to set the standard high. If you look at the Puritan era in the church, that was in the, mostly in the 1600s, kind of in the early, late 1500s, up and through, you know, most of the 1700s, you kind of call that the, the Puritan era. And it was a time of, of great godliness. And, you know, they had their, their problems. But the teaching and preaching that was going on was solid. Okay, these were the, the, the generation, or that was the generation that produced the Westminster Standards and that stood up against kings when they usurped God's authority. Um, we see wonderful things happen then. And you go back and you look at the educational standards that were required for ministers back in those days. From Compared to what we have today, those standards in that day, those, they were off the scale. Okay. I remember uh, one of the, in the Westminster standards, it talks about uh, to, for ordination, uh, when a man was being tested by the presbytery to determine if he was qualified, they would assign him a verse. He was to go up, open the Bible, read the verse, and then he was to close the Bible and then give a sermon on that verse in Latin. 
And then the others would sit and listen to see if this guy had any gifts or abilities. That's not the way to prepare every week for a Sunday sermon, by the way. Okay. But uh, I'm just saying the educational standards were unbelievably high. We would say, well, we can't meet that. Well, I think we could if we really made an effort. Whether we need to go, you know, deliver sermons in Latin could really be debated. But the idea is we need to have qualified men. That means qualified by God's call, qualified by sanctity in their lives, by the Holy Spirit. Not sinless men, but mature men. And we need to have men that are committed and dedicated to preach and teach not their own thoughts, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. And stay close to the scriptures. And what happens when that happens, when that occurs? And we come into that unity of the faith. Note that the body of doctrine and teaching, it is an object for us to uh, desire and work toward. So we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Come to a knowledge of who Jesus is, and he is the Son of God. And he's wonderful in all of his, his works and words and everything about him. But to grow into a knowledge of the Son of God, it really is all about Jesus. To a perfect man, he's a mature person. So we all grow up, that's what he says. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That means as God's image is being restored in us, we are in God's image, but it, it's been marred by the fall. Sanctification is progressive, and as the Word of God is written in our hearts and minds, and we begin to think God's thoughts after Him, as Abraham Kuyper said, we begin to think God's thoughts after Him. We begin to talk. Wow, you, you let's talk to that guy. He sounds like the Bible. That's good. It should be that way. You should your thoughts should be held captive to the obedience of Christ. You grow in the moral, spiritual, ethical excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ begins to show itself in our lives. We become gentle, compassionate. You know, the, the, the kind of the marketing phrase, you know, what would Jesus do? It's a legitimate question, uh, but sometimes misapplied. But how would the Lord want me to react? You know, and we, we need to learn about Jesus and learn in such a way from scripture in prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit that we would begin to follow our Lord in our actions, in gentleness and kindness to others in our words and our works, so that we would grow up. This is why the, the gospel needs to be preached. So we grow into that unity of the faith of, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that you become everything you're supposed to be. And then note the application, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You know, the, you know, the doctrine of the month club, you know, whatever comes down the pike. You know, this week it's prosperity. Next week it's the neo-apostolic gifts, you know, and the next uh, beyond that, who knows what it is. But there's always something out there. It's like, well, it's a new doctrine, you know, um, or they, but they don't say it that way. They go, well, it's a revived older teaching. And you go, OK, but it's not in the Bible, guy. OK, um, one of the pastors here confronted one of the neo-apostolic ministers years ago, and he said to him, he said, there's a lot of stuff going on in your church that isn't in the Bible. The guy didn't even blink. He said to the other pastor, I had a witness that was there, uh, he said, well, yeah, because God's doing a new thing. You won't find it in the Bible. That's like, when I heard, I just, I said to him, I said, it just sounds like it's the same old thing the devil's been doing, okay, for a long time, getting people away from the word of God. So we need to grow up so that we're not tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness 
of deceitful plotting, but speak the truth in love. That's the unity of the spirit manifesting itself. And when we learn God's word, then we speak the truth. Remember, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Speak the truth in love. We may grow up. I've been told to do that a few times in my youth, not a couple of times in my uh, older years. Oh, you need to grow up a little bit. Okay, I do. And so do you. We all do. And God tells us that right here. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. And then he goes, from the whole body is joined together. In other words, then the body, that's the people of God, uh, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. You have gifts and graces that your brothers and sisters need, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Uh, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It builds itself up, that is, by the work of the Spirit, in love. That's how many times the word love shows up in this stuff, huh? We really need to learn to love the Lord and love one another. So we, we see this. So what can we learn from this? Okay, well, first, we're to understand and walk according to God's call in our life. We've covered that pretty clear. Huh? We've called by grace. We should walk accordingly in, in humility. Grace produces humility, gentleness, and long-suffering. If those things are absent in your life, you need to go to God and say, Lord, I need to know your grace better because it doesn't seem to be affecting me in my behavior. Okay, we're to be forgiving one to another. Paul says in Colossians 3.13, forgiving one another and forbearing one another. Okay, thirdly, unity must be guarded diligently. As uh, Rupert Maldinius said in, in an attract he wrote in 1627, and it's a common phrase now, in essentials, unity. That is on the, the basis we, we have to be united. In non-essentials, liberty, freedom. In all things, charity or love. That's a, that's a saying. Actually, the uh, Moravians and the Evangelical Presbyterian Church has that as their official model. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. So very important. We should have that attitude. We maintain the essentials. Certain things that are left to our discretion in Scripture, and there is liberty in the Christian life. Well, we don't make those essentials. When we do that, we destroy the unity of the church. Uh, fourthly, where peace and unity exist, we're to guard it. Where it's absent, we're to pursue it. Romans 12, 18 says this, If it is possible, as much as lies in you, be at peace with all men. So we're to pursue that, pursue peace. Uh, fifthly, unity is never based on compromise of God's word or God's truth. It, unity is found by upholding it. That's why Paul talks about the, the teaching and, and pastors. Uh, the unity of the church is maintained by holding to the truth. Because the only one that wants you to let go of God's truth and might even make it with the promise of greater unity uh, is the devil himself. Okay, we're to hold fast to God's word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul even calls the saints there to come out from among them and be separate. We're to have nothing to do with apostasy and false professors. So there is separation. Separation from evil is not a destruction of unity. Although you'll be told that people that are trying to promote false doctrines you know, when you oppose it, I've seen this happen in the churches. Somebody comes in with some new weird doctrine and it's, you know, it meets opposition. Well, the people that are bringing the new doctrine, they'll say, oh, they say to the ones that are opposing their, their new innovations, oh, well, you're, you're being divisive, brother. No, I'm not being divisive. You're the one that introduced this garbage, not me. Okay. So we need to hold the truth and recognize it's not based on compromise. The unity of the spirit is something 
that we're given, but we grow into the unity of the faith. That's why you need to be under the preaching and teaching of God's word. You need to be reading your Bibles. You need to be praying. Uh, you need to be praying for those who are called to teach and preach. And that's not just your pastor, okay? Uh, that, you know, in the church, God raises up teachers. And so we need to pray because we want to see that unity manifested more fully. We're to maintain peace in the church uh, as the tie that binds us. Nobody says you are to keep, guard the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, that is where, where you know, the blessed be the tie that binds, okay? Uh, we're also to maintain peace in the church and recognize that low thoughts of others, grudges, and just having a bad opinion of people, thinking, oh, they're not really as good as I am, or they're not as good as they should be, or blah, blah, blah. We need to really check our thoughts. Is this really what the Lord wants me to be thinking about that, brother or sister? If somebody's messing up, that is, they're not walking towards you. I should go to them and talk to them. If I'm not willing to do that, I need to be quiet and go to God and pray for them. So to maintain peace in the church, that is, we're to endeavor to keep it. Also, number eight, uh, we're to see each other as the objects of Christ's redeeming love. Remember, if you look and see your brothers and sisters as people that God loves, it's a lot easier for you to love them. And hopefully they'll return that to you also. Uh, we need to see them as uh, the objects of Christ's love and mercy and the image bearers of our gracious God. They have value. And then finally, grace produces growth. And growth is evidenced by life. And where there's life, there's change. The seasons, if you look at a tree, easiest illustration. You can tell kind of what season it is by looking at the leaves or in the wintertime, the absence of them and the fruit. And so, but where there's growth, where there's life, there'll be change. And so we need to be growing. And if that's not happening, we need to go to God. Let's not get stagnant in our, in our Christian walk. So beloved, as Paul said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. May God be pleased to bring that about. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We pray you write it in our hearts and minds. And these things we've talked about, Lord, we ask you to bring about in us for your glory and for our good. And we pray you bless us. Forgive us where we have failed to maintain the unity of your spirit in the bond of peace. Please forgive us for that, Lord, and cleanse our hearts. Help us to be men and women of peace. You said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. So, Lord, we do pray that you would help us to really truly follow you, Lord Jesus Christ, and endeavor to see peace through the gospel and to maintain the truth in all things. Bless us now, we pray. Work in our hearts, work in our families, work in this congregation. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.